0: I'm going to be in Psalm 73, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you might want to turn there. If you don't, that's cool. I'll just put it up on the screen for you. We'll be going through it and um, talking about some things. As you might know, psalm, a psalm is a, a song or a poem, and so there is an ancient poet who writes some very powerful words, and I want you to, to kind of listen to this a little bit. Um, and by the way, I'm going to be uh, reading from the New American Standard Bible on this one uh, with some of my own translation too. Um, but if you have an NIV, don't worry, you'll still get the gist, I promise. It'll be great. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied, or for I was envious of the arrogant. I was jealous, I wanted what they had of the arrogant. These are people who are boisterous, who are boastful, and why did he envy them? For there was no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They do not labor as other men, must be nice, right? Nor are they stricken like mankind. Now, of course, this word here, stricken, means either with violence or disease. So they don't, if you were in Jamaica, they had no worries, right? Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them, which is very interesting. He goes on. Their eye bulges from fatness. Isn't that poetic? Can you imagine what that looks like? I kind of have this cartoon sort of sort of look. I've watched way too many cartoons. That's true. The imaginations of their heart run riot. Yes, I know how that goes as well. Uh, Yeah, their imaginations... Run riot, run rampant. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. This is great stuff. This is really, really very powerful, I think. I love that. Their eye bulges from fatness. Um, the imaginations of their heart run riot. It's kind of unchecked is the idea here. It just, it just runs amuck without any adult supervision. <clears throat> Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Now, interestingly enough, though, I get this, this idea of uh, how does God know? These questions are asking reminds me an awful lot of a question that a certain serpent asked in Genesis 3. Did God really say that? Do you remember this? And there's this, these questions. Does God really know? Did he really say that? Is that really what he meant? How many of you have tread on those questions occasionally, right? Is that what he really meant? Yeah, it's easy to do. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Surely in vain, there's just this empty feeling when he sees all of these things going on among the wicked, among the wealthy, and and he sees his own life, there's this empty sort of feeling. This never-ending, no-relief type of punishment and affliction in this idea of being betrayed Or betraying the generation of your children is really about the idea of breaking faith. In other words, what he's saying here is, I'm ready to walk away from it all. I'm ready to walk away from belief. I'm ready to be done with all of this. And if I do that, I know I'm going to hurt the people around me. The general sense of this is, what's the point? I'm ready to cast off my my belief. And it's really easy to feel his frustration when, when, you're, when you're reading through this. And maybe it resonates with you in an uncomfortable way. Just maybe. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt this way? Surely God is good, but as for me... <sighs> It's this feeling where we we know that God is good, but the things that I'm seeing, boy, I don't deny the goodness of God, but where I am right now, yeah, I've got some questions about God. It's a strange mixture of, of... jealousy over the success that he sees and at the same time there's an indignation over the injustice that causes that success and it gets him to scratch his head and go "I, I just I just don't understand how all these are happening and if I'm completely honest as a pastor I have known pastors of other churches that have incited similar feelings in my own life I see the way they operate and I see the success and I have a hard time squaring those two things And we rebel over those types of feelings that we have. How can people like that actually have so much? Why is that even fair? How does that that occur? And and there's this part of us, we wonder, when are they going to receive their just desserts? When are they going to get it? We wonder that. This idea was illustrated for me um, dramatically in the 2015 film called The Big Short. How many of you have seen this film? You haven't? Okay, Uh, a couple of things. It's kind of a documentary uh, that explored in part the 2007, 2008 housing market crash here in the United States. If you can handle the language, which is a bit on the blue side, it's an excellent film. And it's informative of all of the events that occurred during that time frame, but it actually educates you in terminology as you go along. Very interesting. Uh, Filmmakers had a a fun way of, of telling the story. But as it progresses, you learn some things along the way. But the most jarring moment of the entire film, at least for me, was right at the very end. And uh, there was a voiceover, and there was also some, some print that you had to read. And, and what the filmmakers uh, conveyed was that the U.S. government bailed out some of the big banks during this mortgage crisis. Do you remember this? It wasn't just banks, it was some insurance companies, and was some other businesses, because they were, quote, too big to fail, remember? And some of those bankers, not all of them, but some of those bankers, used the bailout money to pay themselves bonuses and to lobby Congress to kill meaningful banking reform. Yeah. And history now tells us that only one banker actually went to jail. Five trillion dollars in real estate value and in retirement money disappeared. Eight million people lost jobs and six million people lost their homes. And they paid themselves bonuses. Doesn't that just aggravate you a little bit? I mean, isn't that just, there's this part of you that goes, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How does that kind of a thing happen? And we read that, or we see it on film, and there's this part of us, we just get sick to our stomach. The injustice and the lack of accountability, and we wonder, let's be honest, we wonder where God is, don't we? We actually wonder where God is. How on earth could he let something happen to so many people, so tragically, where was God through all of this? And the poet sums this up for us, I think, beautifully. When I pondered to understand all of this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, I was deeply troubled by it. I tried to, I tried to wrap my mind around this thing, but it just bothers me. And here we have this, this poet who is, is seeing the, the circumstances around him and he's having a really hard time reconciling those circumstances to what he has been taught about God. And this is an important thing for us to, to remember. So his, his teachings, the things that he's been taught, and his experience are two totally different things. And he's wondering, how do I put these together? It wasn't supposed to work this way, especially under the law of Moses. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Now, what's really interesting is that you have this idea that, in Judaism, that if you follow God or if you're against God, certain things would happen. And if you don't believe me, you can look it up in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and you can see this. But if you follow God, you received blessing. If you were against God, you would be cursed. It was that simple. And here is this poet's reality. Here's what he's seeing, is that if I follow God, because that's what I'm trying to do, I'm suffering because of it, which sounds a lot like a curse, right? And all of these other people who are living contrary to God are are experiencing prosperity, (laughs) which sounds a lot like a blessing. It's opposite. This is not the way it's supposed to work. There's lots of questions about it. And it runs counter to not only his faith, but also reasonable human ethics. No wonder he was ready to walk away from the whole thing, to cast off what his beliefs were. And then something happens. It's really interesting. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Verse 16 I tried to understand it. It was troublesome. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. There's a shift there, a pivot. Verse 16 and 17 turns this corner, and if you look, he, he says, surely... You set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment, they are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. He begins to see that there are new possibilities, that there's something different out there. There is a longer game in play, and we can't always see it. He goes on. He gets introspective. When my heart was embittered and I was grieved within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Isn't that great? (laughs) Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Now, let's think about this for a moment. When you get angry or you get depressed, my guess is you're like me and you don't think straight, right? You kind of get that way. My wife and I call it the downward spiral. And it starts like this, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And by the end of the day, you're just sniping at each other. And I don't know why I liked you in the first place. You know, it kind of comes to that, come on, be honest, you're in church. And we do this. We get to this point where we react to everything. And we, we snap at everyone around us. And that's what this is. My heart was embittered, and I was grieved within, and I was senseless and ignorant, yeah, when you're, (laughs) I'll just ask your spouse, your spouse will tell me the truth about you, exactly what happens when you get angry and depressed and these kinds of things happen, and we, we, we get this way, and yet here's the beauty, and this is what the poet is trying to explain to us, even in those moments, when we are feeling that way and we are reacting stupidly, he is still with us, even when we don't feel it, Even though we don't feel like he's there, he's still there. He's with us. And what's so beautiful about this is that the poet finishes with a different perspective. Whom have I in heaven but you? Remember, this is the guy who's ready to walk away from it all, right? Who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Wasn't he just envious about all of the success, right? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are faithful to you. Hmm. Yeah. I really like... This notion of my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, my, is the strength of my heart. This reminds me of a, another passage. Um, the New Testament writer Paul penned this in a letter to a group of Christians. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think Paul had this poet in mind when he wrote this. This moment when we're the weakest, when we're snapping at everybody, when we're really, the truth is, God is still with us and he's our strength. He's the one who can get us out of that, that downward spiral. So what is it about the sanctuary? What is it about that? And I think it has less to do with where and everything to do with who. Let me offer you just a couple of thoughts, just a couple of things to think about. First, I think that the sanctuary has God at the center. This is why we sing, and by the way, we carefully select um, the music that we do here, not just for singability, but also for theology. There are certain songs that haven't made the cut. I'm just going to tell you that. For us. And it's why we spend a lot of time pointing out God's work in the Bible, but also in the world around us. It's one of the reasons why we gather here together to do that is to put God at the center because let's be honest, there's a lot of distractions during the week. At least there is in my life. How about yours? Yeah? There are a lot of things. Pastor Dan was even talking about this earlier. He's like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world today, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on in your life. Yeah, we're distracted, and we forget the fact that God is with us even when we don't feel like it, as the poet said. So the sanctuary, when we talk about this idea of the sanctuary... It has God at the center. And then secondly, God is at the center. When he's at the center, we get a a sense of a bigger picture. It helps us to take a long view of things because, no, we don't see it now, but there's something that's coming, and I'm going to trust that God is going to be a part of that as well. It shows that we're part of a much, much larger story. In other words, this ain't all there is. And aren't you glad of that? The sanctuary is about putting God at the center. The sanctuary, when God is at the center, gives us a, a bigger picture to deal with. And by the way, by the way, those bankers that paid themselves the bonuses, they may have gotten off the legal hook, but they're not off God's hook. You just need to know that. They're not off God's hook for that. But also, I think there's something else in the text that's that's not necessarily uh, readily apparent. There's something else in here. And I think it's very poignant for us. If we accept the idea that till I went to the sanctuary, if we accept the fact that sanctuary is church, if we accept that just for a moment, we think about it, that means that as a church, we need to act differently. We need to be different. If the sanctuary means church, we are different. This becomes an alternative economy. Think about this for a moment. This is not about having power over something, but rather we are empowered to do something. Do you see the difference? Because what the poet talked about in the first half of that poem, what he was dealing with was about power and control and the the unjust exercise of that power. But when we talk about being an alternative economy, to be something different, to be something that has God at the center, to taking a longer view, when we pull all of those things together and we really think about them, that means that it's not about power as in struggle, but empowered to actually accomplish what it is that God has in mind for us. It means that we struggle and we overcome together. Not where one is competing against the other, but together we're actually, we're actually winning. We speak love and hope and peace, not violence, not sickness, not oppression, none of those things. And we take to heart this other passage that the New Testament writer Paul says, do not merely look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of Of others. It's in Philippians chapter 2. It means that we take care of each other, not just ourselves. And more importantly, we make room for more. Because love is ever expanding, it grows, it has room for other people. So here's my big takeaway this is the big idea, this is the thing that really helped me change your location, change your perspective, until I went to the sanctuary, until I stepped into the sanctuary of God. That's what changed his perspective. The fact that he entered into this alternative economy, this different type of community, this place that has a different perspective on the world than what you're living in day in and day out. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me? Nod your head so I know you're awake. Yeah, exactly. This is supposed to be different here. I want you to notice what the poet really says. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. But as for me, the nearness of God is uh, uh, is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I really like this. It starts with, but as for me, then the shift happens, and at the end he says, but as for me. He repeats himself. Very last verse, 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Now however you're feeling today, However you're feeling today, and I don't know what that is. Um, Hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to you. But however you're feeling today, (laughs) we are a sanctuary people, and we're glad you're here.